And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Ah, yes, rock and roll through the week. And uh, man, uh, got a great show in store for us today. We're going to talk about uh, church history and specifically an area of church history that a lot of people have forgotten, but uh, has recently uh, been uncovered again. You know, so to speak, we're going to be talking with our great friend Michael Aquilina about his brand new book, Africa and the Early Church, the Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. Um, and I, I would probably venture to say for most people, you know, it really doesn't mentor it. Whenever you think of Catholicism, you think of Rome, you think of Europe, right? You don't really think about North Africa. Well, you know what? North Africa, very, very important center of Christianity. And uh, so on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking with the great Michael Aquilina and talk about Africa and the early church. I love it because it's an intersection, history, patristics, um, just all sorts of really cool things. And it helps us better understand, get a better uh, grasp of the early church and what it was all about. So like I said, that's going to be coming up later on uh, this side of the break. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to look at informal logical fallacy, help sharpen our critical thinking skills. Today's finding the fallacy is to appeal to flattery. And also we're going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father, uh, uh, pretty obscure, I think. Most people may not have heard of him unless you're an avid listener of the show. It's St. Cesar of Arles. St. Cesar of Arles. So uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, I got a lot going. So that's the docket for today, folks. I uh, hope everybody is having a great week. And indeed, I uh, already started. And I didn't even welcome a few to the show. So let me, let me do that right now. I want to welcome all of you. Hey, Welcome aboard, all of you listening on radio around the country, and also our live streaming peeps. How you doing? And all of you listening on podcasts around the world and in the future. It's great to have you all on board for the program. Indeed. Okay, so uh, I mentioned podcasts. I know a lot of you listen at work. A lot of you listen at home. Sometimes uh, baby's crying. You can't listen to the whole program, but you want to learn about this very important uh, section of church history that has been neglected, uh, don't worry. All you have to do is just go to virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on Hands-On Apologetics or any of the other great shows Virgin Most Powerful produces, and bam, you got all the shows uploaded right there. And so, like I said, if you can't listen to the whole interview with uh, Mike Aquilina, don't worry. You can check it out uh, via podcast at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Org. Also, I want to give the official Dojo mailbox, so if you'd like to get a hold of me, love to hear from you. I've been getting some great emails from the audience. The official Dojo mailbox is questions at hands-onapologetics.com. That is questions at 
handsonapologetics.com and it does come directly to me and I do try to answer them and uh, I know I'm behind on a few things um, if you haven't heard from me in a while please shoot me another email you never know even though it is a direct email um, sometimes it gets filtered to uh, you know all these different folders and stuff and sometimes it gets lost so just in case if you haven't heard shoot me another email glad to hear from you Okay, I think I've covered all the bases. Um, okay, well, hey, let's start with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Appeal to Flattery. The Appeal to Flattery is a fallacy in which a person uses flattery, excessive compliments, in an attempt to appeal to the audience's vanity and win support for their side. It is also known as the apple polishing, uh, wheel greasing, Appeal uh, to pride, appeal to vanity, and so on and so forth. And of course, I don't have to explain to you what the appeal to flattery is because you are such an intelligent audience and uh, you guys really know your stuff. So there's not much point in going into this appeal to flattery. Uh, yeah, this is one of those logical fallacies that uh, everybody knows. You know, it is just part of life. And usually you can uh, you can spot this a my, uh, million miles away. Uh, does it happen in apologetics? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I I mean, I, I know in debates you will have uh, debaters who will try to butter up the audience a little bit. Um, but the thing is, that since everybody's familiar with this fallacy, um, it, you, you have to be careful because it's so easy to identify. But uh, nevertheless, uh, yeah, it does occur in apologetics uh, here and there, uh, probably also in formal debates, uh, probably most. I can't imagine a person, the person um, meeting where the, the other person tries to persuade another by excessive flattery. But, I mean, I guess anything's possible. And uh, although, like I said, it isn't one of those uh, super technical ones that you have to go through and parse out every verb uh, nevertheless, uh, that is our finding the fallacy for today, the appeal to flattery. All right, let's meet our early church father for today. Like I said, a little bit obscure. He's not as well known as, of course, you know, the Augustine, Jerome, uh, Athanasius, you know, the big names in church history. But nevertheless, important figure. And actually, that's why I love the segment, Meet the Early Church Fathers, because we get to learn these lesser-known fathers. It is St. Caesar of Arles or Caesar of Arles. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, I'll say Caesar of Arles. He was a Burgundian, and he was undoubtedly one of the most influential uh, Gallic bishops of his time. A monk in the monastery of Lorenz, uh, he held an important archiepiscopal see at uh, from Arles from 502 until his death 40 years later. Caesar. Uh, was probably the greatest moral preacher of the Western Church between St. Augustine of Hippo and Berthold of Regensburg. And it was likely renowned for his pastoral abilities. Uh, not only did he personally escape the taint of semi-plagiarism, which had infected so many of his countrymen and fellow monks, but he also wrote vigorously against that heresy and presided over the Second Council of Orange in 529 A.D., 
which uh, counsel condemned semi-Pelagianism while upholding a modified form of Augustinianism. And the proceedings of Orange, uh, Orange uh, very shortly received specific papal approval. So it is an authoritative council, even though it's a local council in the church. In fact, as apologist, I recommend that you read the um, canons of Second Orange. Very, very helpful when you're dialoguing with Calvinists. Uh, especially renowned for his works of charity, Cesar himself lived in perfect poverty while distributing to the poor and using a ransom of captives all such wealth that came to him. A Valuable Life of St. Cesar in two volumes was written by five of his friends and intimate acquaintances between the years 542 and 549. And actually, um, you know, Marcus Grodi told me an interesting story about this particular saint. Apparently, uh, where he was situated was along a road that connected uh, all the roads that to Rome to the rest of Europe. So whenever there was a council or some sort of visits to Rome, the clergy would necessarily pass through his diocese. And because of that, uh, he was able to influence the church in the West in a way that no other bishop probably could outside the Pope, in that uh, as bishops uh, were traveling through and listening to the sermons of St. Cesar, uh, they would necessarily you know, carry some of these sermons to their own diocese. And uh, therefore, you know, his moral preaching and his preaching against semi-Pelagianism really helped inoculate uh, West, uh, Western Europe from the heresy. Um, I think we have time to maybe do a quick quote from St. Cesar. Um, yeah, here's one. It says, God never deserts a man unless he is first deserted by that man. For even if a man shall have committed grievous sins once and twice and a third time, God still looks for him, just as he says through the prophet, so that he may be converted and live. But if a man begins to continue in his sins, despair is born of a multitude of those sins, and obduracy is begotten of despair. Obduracy is not affected by the compelling power of God, but is gotten from the forgiveness and indulgence of God. And thus, it must be believed that it is it was not divine power, but divine patience that hardened Pharaoh's heart. Boy, that's a lot to unpack there. In fact, you can see uh, some of this thought actually not only in Second Orange, but also in the Council of Trent on its decree and justification. Um, very interesting stuff. And so it was God's patience that hardened Pharaoh's heart, uh, even though, you know, in, in the text there's often Semitisms that will uh, attribute causality to God all the time, you know, even God's permissive will. They'll say that God caused this heart to harden, but it was actually divine patience. And if you think about it in context, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, so that's our early church father for today. And, um, yeah, so, um, by the way, I also forgot to give a shout out to my YouTube channel. So let me do that really quick. Uh, any folks interested in the Old Testament canon, as you know, myself, William Albrecht and David Zavaras has a channel on YouTube called Apocrypha Apocalypse. Check it out, folks. And, uh, if you like the stuff, subscribe, like, and we appreciate that. I hear the music coming up. Coming up next, our good friend, Michael Aquilina. 
We're going to be talking about his brand new book on Africa and the early church. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We are going to be chatting about a very important area of the church. Many of you are familiar, of course, you think Rome, very important, influential area, Italy, uh, Antioch, Alexandria. But, you know, there is a forgotten section of a area in which was very, very influential in church history, and that's Africa. And help us understand it, we have our good friend, Michael Aquilina, with us. Michael is a popular author working in the area of church history, especially patristics and in the study of the early church fathers. He's the executive vice president and trustee at the St. Paul Center for uh, Biblical Theology, and uh, which is a uh, Catholic research center based in Steubenville, Ohio. He's the author of several thousand books, and the latest one is awesome. It is Africa and Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. And uh, you could get that, by the way, at St. Paul Center, stpaulcenter.org. And Mike Aquilino, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thanks for having me back, Gary. Yeah, well, I, I was teasing you a little bit with the several thousand books, but that's only because I'm jealous. Because, uh, boy, you uh, you're just a writing machine, and it's all gold. It's no fluff. I mean, well researched books with fantastic insights that I steal from all the time. By the way, uh, steal away, steal away. <laughs> you're very kind. I thank you for your kind words. Yeah, so so how do you do it? Let's start the program off that. Is, is there a secret to being able to uh, to author on all these different areas in the early church? Well, one of the one of the um, the keys to understand, I think, is uh, is that I'm not a scholar. I'm not not an academic. There's a lot of good scholarly work going on right now. A lot of good work going on in academia, and I'm taking advantage of that. You know, I'm taking this. Uh, this work that's remote from most people, that's inaccessible to most people, that's happening in scholarly journals and in technical language, and I'm I'm translating it into the stories that people can understand. Uh, so I'm taking advantage of, um, of 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 a great time in the study of the early church. Uh, it, I don't I don't want to take credit for it because I'm not doing the original research. Again, I'm not a scholar, but I want people to have access to this work and to these findings. Because I think the fathers belong to everyone. They don't just belong to academics. They belong to the church, the whole church, and uh, and they should be venerated by by ordinary people and 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 um, and and used by ordinary people, read by ordinary people. Yeah, yeah. Thank God for your work, uh, because there really is a need for that. And I don't, I don't think I know anybody that does it as well as you. And I know You're, that's you, very uh, kind. And I'm not using the appeal to flattery because. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm not greasing the wheels or anything like that. But yeah, I, I, uh, you are so accessible when you write, and you, you're able to take very complex subjects and boil it down so that it's easy to understand and grasp, and, and very insightful too. And especially this subject, you know, Africa. Uh, what got you interested in the subject of Christianity in Africa? Well, 
I got interested just by reading the fathers because Africa was such an important place in the development of the early church. And and I've known this. I've known this for decades just from reading the fathers. So many of the great fathers came from from Africa, you know, beginning with the greatest of them all, in my opinion, St. Augustine of of Hippo. Right. He's he's a North African. But there are so many others, St. Cyprian, Tertullian, uh, Lactantius, Arnobius. Uh, so many great fathers of the church, so many great reads, really, and so many great stories of what happened there. But but um, I guess uh, it was a few years ago, maybe four years ago, my editor at Angelus News asked me to write uh, to write an article about about Roman Africa. And so I did. I wrote this article. And uh, and at the end of that year, he told me that. Of all the articles that the news service had published that year, this one uh, got more readership. This one got more readership. It also got more mail. It got more response. And I saw this myself as I posted it on social media. Uh, and, it, and it was very strange to me, very strange to me, because uh, uh, people were so quick to racialize the story, you know, and uh, and to politicize the story. And here I, I thought I was just telling the true story of what happened in the early church and the importance of North Africa. I think it's unfortunate that we're caught up in these these strange social currents right now that want to distort the truth of history. And this is an area of history that we should especially recover because it's, as I said on the, in the subtitle, it's almost forgotten. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And uh, yeah, and it's uh, not only almost forgotten, but I think especially today when you have all these political streams and things like that, that it's important to touch base on with reality, right? In regards to what exactly was the situation in North Africa and how has North Africa contributed to our, you know, our overall patrimony? Yeah. Like you said, Augustine alone. I mean, <laughs> take Augustine away. Boy, our, our past is impoverished. If we, if, if, if Augustine were the only Christian to come from North Africa, we would owe everything to North Africa. Yeah. You know, because he's that influential. He's he's the he's the father of the church most quoted by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. He, uh, you know, he is he is the individual most quoted uh, by the catechism of the Catholic Church, the individual outside the authors of scripture. He's the he's the one most quoted in the catechism of the Catholic Church. So mm-hmm. so Catholicism in our time bears the stamp of Augustine the North African. Uh, and not only Catholicism uh, you know, if you look at uh, Lutheranism and Calvinism, both Luther and Calvin try to claim Augustine as their greatest influence, right? And so, so we in the West especially owe so much to Augustine, and uh, and I want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, like you said, there there's a whole uh, group of early church fathers. I mean, really great early church fathers that came from North Africa. Um, how did the uh, I mean, um, how did Christianity get to North Africa, for one thing? And then what makes it such a hotbed for, you know, early Christianity? Yeah, well, a um, little bit of backgrounds in order, I think, you know, for a long time, the major city in North Africa, the city of Carthage, was at war with Rome. Right. And these are the very early years of um, uh, 
of the Roman Republic. Okay, you're looking at the you know the 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 second century, the third century before Christ. Uh, there's a lot of rivalry between Carthage in North Africa and Rome and the European mainland. Uh, everybody knows the story of Hannibal uh, taking elephants into into uh, into Europe, right? And and, right. and and trying to get over the Alps with those those uh, elephants. Now the the war. And the rivalry between Carthage and Rome lasted a long time, and it was a fierce war. The longer a war lasts, the nastier it gets. And uh, Cato used to end the sessions of the Senate with the line, Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. It was a tagline. It was like a rallying cry. And boy, when Rome won that war, it destroyed Carthage. And it colonized Carthage, right? So they sent a lot of uh, military over there to uh, to to live in the land and make it Roman. And, and they did, you know, they, they brought a lot of Roman customs into North Africa, but they also interacted with all the native peoples of the area, the, the surrounding area. And they not only interacted, they intermarried. And there was a great, um, a great meeting of the cultures at that time. And by the time we, we arrive at the, the first century A.D., the Christian era, second century, third century, what's happening in North Africa is rather remarkable. There's, there's a, a, a renaissance going on in, in culture, in thought, in literature, in the arts, and all of this stuff is flourishing in, um, in North Africa. And we today look back on that era and we call the we call the the empire the Roman Empire, and we assume that influence was flowing outward, radiating outward from Rome in every direction. But it was a two-way street, and sometimes, uh, you know, all the traffic was running from the colonies or the provinces toward Rome. African culture, North African Latin culture was profoundly influential on Roman culture in the, the, the first century, second century, third century. Uh, really Latin language was enjoying its first full flourishing in North Africa at this time. You have great authors like the novelist Apuleius, you have playwrights like Terence, you have scientists, all of these people, naturalists, writing in North Africa and then influencing the people in Europe, in Italy, in Rome. Uh, so think of that kind of vibrant city going on in Africa. And people, it's a port city, so people are coming in from all over the place. And just as in every port city in the Roman world, you have uh, a strong Jewish presence. And, uh, and, uh, and so there are synagogues in North Africa. And it seems that Christianity arose in those synagogues first. All right. And that's really the pattern that we see in the Acts of the Apostles. And it's the pattern that we see in in the the historical traditions of um, of, of most of the cities in the Roman world that that um, they followed the apostolic pattern. St. Paul would go into a city, find the synagogue, uh, speak in the synagogue because they always invited travelers to to give a word of wisdom. And Paul would speak and he'd deliver the gospel. And sometimes He'd get tossed out on his ear, and other times the people would be more more open, more willing, and he'd speak there for weeks or months at a time. So I suspect that that's the way it got started in um, in in Carthage in North Africa, and uh, and the church got its firm footing there. We we see the first evidence of Christianity in North Africa 
around 170 AD, so pretty early in the church's history. But what we see at that point is a church that's already fully formed. It's already functional. It's already vibrant. And Tertullian at that time is already arguing that Christians are everywhere in every walk of life. So uh, Christianity must have been functioning for a long time before it left us a, a, a strong documentary record. Oh, that's interesting. So there, there's no like apostle to North Africa. Uh, it just, you know, kind of just developed from uh, the grassroots level. That's right. And, and, and I suspect that even in the apostolic era, there were Africans uh, who were exposed to the gospel, uh, especially when they went to um, when they went to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast. Jews in the diaspora who went to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feasts would then go back home afterwards and they would if, if they had been converted to the way while they were in Jerusalem, they would have gone home with the gospel. Think about that scene of the first Pentecost that we see in, in the Acts of the Apostles, the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, we're told that there were people there from Africa. There were people there from Libya. There were people there from Egypt. There were people there from Africa, right? And they received the gospel, and surely they took it home with them. And when they took it home, they at least tried to make converts. And I'll bet, having received the power of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, in that great first thrust um, that they that they uh, they did it somewhat effectively, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I hear the music coming up. We'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Michael Aquilina about his brand new book, Africa and the Early Church: The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Michael Aquilina, author of the book, Africa and the Early Church, The Almost Forgotten Roots of Catholic Christianity. By the way, it's available at stpaulcenter.org, stpaulcenter.org. Uh, check out, buy it. It's an awesome book. Um, talk about Africa uh, in its early roots. So, uh, so immediately, you know, the first writings we have from Africa, like you said, Tertullian's boasting about how Christians are have t overtaken everywhere, you know, all the ports and, and every, cities inland, outland, uh, islands were all around. And that's certainly true uh, throughout the, the whole of North Africa. Um, so uh, was North Africa a vital um, uh, portion of the Roman Empire in terms of, you know, just worldly goods and stuff? Oh sure. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of its uh, its its uh, production of food, it was invaluable. It's a breadbasket of of Italy. You know, uh, one uh, uh, the the Romans were were pulling a lot of their wheat, their grain from three places: from Alexandria in Egypt, an African country; uh, from Carthage in North Africa, um, in the province of Africa, and from Sicily. Okay, so they had those three sources of grain. Uh, North Africa was was indispensable. Without the grain from Carthage, uh, the Romans would starve. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, you know, being uh, being such an integral uh, uh, component of the Roman Empire, um, I imagine th uh, there was a, a lot of interchange between North Africa, you know, the Christians in North Africa, and also in Europe. 
Oh, certainly. You know, if we look at the the early history of the church, uh, the faith spread mostly along the trade routes, uh, which were used by the military. Uh, if you if you look at what was happening in history, it's almost as if, almost as if, uh, God was preparing the way for the gospel, right? Uh, because in the time of Caesar Augustus, at the time of our Lord, uh, we see the first construction happening on a worldwide system of roads. So you have, for the first time, overland routes that go from um, from from Europe to Asia. You know, and they're going in both directions from Rome. Uh, uh, this is this is happening for the first time in history. Around the same time, uh, a mariner uh, discovered the trade winds that allowed. Uh, mariners, uh, you know, ships to sail on the open sea rather than hugging the shore. So that sh- that should um, that greatly reduced travel time from one destination to another. So so uh, goods and and people were able to move swiftly across the sea for the first time in human history. And Augustus did us the big favor did the world the big favor of eradicating piracy on the high seas. He had such a strong navy that he suppressed piracy, it was gone, and again, the goods and the people were able to move freely from one place to another. This is happening, again, for the first time in human history with this kind of ease. And so the gospel was able to move from one end of the empire to, to another, just as, as Pepper was moving from, uh, from, from India to Rome and, in, and was in great demand. So... So so yeah this is this is uh this is the way this is the way everything everything flowed from one port to another. Yeah. Yeah and also uh in terms of uh influence on theology um uh, North Africa was uh not only um provided great uh lights like a, like you said Augustine it also there was some conflicts too. You know, oh, sure. Cyprian of Carthage and, you know, the rebaptism of uh, heretics and uh, the uh, the lapsed, you know, whether they should be admitted or not. Um, yeah. So there, there was also regional conflicts as well as a, a lot of uh, mutual support, right? So many of the doctrinal crises of the early church took place. Uh, in 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 African territory. Right. If we you, you mentioned you mentioned this. uh this uh, problem of what to do with repentant sinners, right? There was a, a party of the lax who wanted just to let people in and will wink and, and, and take them back without, without any recognition that they had sinned grievously. And then you had the, the party of the rigorists who wanted to shut them out and keep them from the sacraments for the remaining days of their lives. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the discussion really took place in North Africa, because it was it was ground zero during the Dacian persecution. It's where the the persecution was prosecuted um, most vehemently, and so um, so Cyprian found himself at the center of that discussion, which was an international discussion going on. Uh, a half a century later, we find the Arian controversy, the Arian heresy arising in Africa. It's in Egypt, right, and the the yeah. the, uh, the city of Alexandria, where. Arius served as a as a priest, so you have that controversy beginning there, finally being 
well, not finally, but being settled at Nicaea, the 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 final settlement didn't come for centuries, but uh, right. but but uh, it it led to the the Council of Nicaea, which which gave us our clear articulation of the Catholic faith that we still recite as definitive every Sunday. All right, when we go to Mass, we recite the the Creed of Nicaea or what's based on the Creed of Nicaea. Anyway, yeah. so you know all of these things were taking place in, in Africa. Um, and again, the influence was was not radiating radiating out from Rome. It was it was it was radiating out from Africa, going to Rome. You know, I consider myself I, I'm I'm considered to be a Roman Catholic, a Latin Rite Christian, right? And uh, I have all of these these tags like Roman and Latin, and those adjectives were were more true of the Christians in North Africa than they were true of the Christians in Rome. <laughs> because Rome was using a Greek liturgy for the first several centuries of its existence, right? Yep. And and resisted a change to Latin. But it's quite likely, it seems likely, that the African church, the North African church, used a, um, uh, a Latin liturgy from its earliest years. And it was that Latin liturgy that provided the foundation for the kind of worship that we use today in the churches in the West. So, um, so... I'm, I'm, yes, I'm a Roman Catholic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a member of the Latin Rite. uh, But all of these things, really, I owe to North Africa as much as I owe them to Rome, if not more than I owe them to Rome. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I didn't think about that, but you know, my own work with the canon, uh, you have a this the Greek Septuagint gets translated into Latin very early on, like second Christian century in North Africa. In North Africa, right? Yeah. And where did the canon get settled first? Right? Where did the Africa, councils yeah. meet that settled the canon? So all of these important, you know, mile markers in early church history are are just firmly placed in Africa, right? All of these these touchstones of our tradition that we're always going back to again and again, like the creeds, the canons, the councils, are North African. We owe so much, and yet we've forgotten this somehow. I don't know how, but we've forgotten it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know with my own work, too, like the Pelagian heresy, um, that came from up north. It, it makes its way into Italy. The Pope initially was uh, kind of indifferent, you know, not really sure which way to go. But once it gets down to North Africa, you know, with Augustine, uh, that's when, you know, the alarm sounded and then Rome begins to act against the, the heresy. Certainly, you know, uh, and, and Augustine really uh, utters utters the, the the semi-final word on it, okay? It's later. <laughs> right. Augustine's word is clarified by later councils, but he's the one who makes it his his life's mission to stop this, right? He's right. the one who's calling, who's sounding the alarms and calling upon the Pope to act and act forcefully. It's Augustine who makes it an issue. I think everybody else in both the East and the West just would, would prefer to ignore it, you know, let it let it go by. It's it's not as dangerous as some of the other heresies. And Augustine's saying, no, this is a dangerous moment right now. This is a crisis. And he helped he helped the popes to recognize it for for what it was. Yeah, and he sent word to Jerome in Bethlehem. You know, watch out for him. And yeah, it it is very interesting because you know, of course, Rome is the center of authority, but 
Africa with on a local level is incredibly influential. Like, um, you know, we often think of Hippo and Carthage, you know, with the cannon. But there was uh, dozens of councils in North Africa. It was every year they would meet in council and put out decrees and cannons. Yes. Yes. So so uh, it was a very I mean, we're, we talk a lot about synodality these days, but the African <laughs> church was a synodal church. I mean, they yeah. the, the bishops met regularly and they weighed in on important issues, as you're pointing out. You know, these are essential issues that need to be settled. Um, you know, these aren't peripheral things. These aren't kind of pie in the sky things. No, these are the very practical issues that need to be dealt with right now. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So, um Let's see. Um, well, Augustine, uh, boy, we could have a couple of programs just talking about the influence of Augustine. Yes. Uh, is did you notice any uh, African um, uh, some anything that's distinctly African about uh, Augustine and his approach to theology? Hmm. Uh, well, it was Latin. He calls yeah. upon his predecessors an, an awful lot. You know, he's dependent upon Cyprian. Uh, he's dependent upon Tertullian. He's obviously very familiar with their work. Uh, and, uh, and he, 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 he speaks as an African. Uh, he's, he's always very open about that. He, um, he, he spent time in Italy. He was the, um, he, he, he was a teacher in Rome, a teacher of rhetoric. He also held the chair in rhetoric at the Imperial court in Milan, but he always did these things as an African. And he went back home and he, uh, he, he, he chose to go back home and to live there and to serve the church there. Um, he surrounded himself with Africans. He lived in community there in 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 North Africa, with uh, with close friends and uh, and they they served as priests in the diocese while he was while he was bishop. Um, I would say that there's a certain fierceness to Augustine that's pretty typical of the African Church. Uh, we see uh, that most of the movements that went awry in Africa went went um, went 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 there because not because of laxity, uh, but because of of uh, a certain fanaticism. All right, and they uh, they set themselves up as as uh, you you often find people in these African movements, the mo- the movement of the Montanists, you know, and others. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, fierce. Yes. In fact, let's pick up uh, that thread on the other side of the break. We're chatting with Michael Aquilina to talk about his new book, Africa and Early Church. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Michael Aquilina about his brand new book, Africa and the Early Church. And right before the break, Mike, you know, you brought about one of those insights. That's why I love reading your stuff. It's like that makes so much sense because North Africa was not an area for wimps. I mean, just think <laughs> no. of their pre-Christian time. If you're going to take elephants over the mountains to attack right. your enemy, right. uh, you're pretty tough. Right, right. And they're... Uh, the- uh, North African religion before Christianity was known for its extremes. This is where the Phoenicians settled, you know, the offspring of Canaan, and uh, and they sacrificed they sacrificed small children, babies actually, uh, there, and uh, and and uh, and you find even the Romans being horrified by that uh, when it's going on. Um, so you you do have this element of passion in religion in North Africa. Um, 
You know, when we talk about North African Christianity uh, at the time of the fathers, we're talking about a wide area, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, Egypt, a lot of territory there. So it's hard to make generalizations, right? It's, uh, you know, you don't want to fall into stereotyping or anything like that. Sure. But, um, but you do find certain qualities, especially there in Roman North Africa. When we think about that litany of great names, Tertullian, Cyprian, Arnobius, Augustine, Lactantius, you know, when you think about all of these men, you know, what, what do they have in common? Well, they, they have a certain creativity, uh, certain intellectual acumen. Uh, we find a fluency and a clarity in their, um, in their communication. Uh, so they're able to, to, to think deeply and then articulate these thoughts theologically, uh, these are these are all great things, but that ferocity that you mentioned sometimes took people over the top, and even some of those people were mentioning, like like Augustine himself, you know, fell into the Manichaean heresy when he was a young man, um, you know, took his intellectual speculation a little bit too far, uh, but wasn't critical in his examination of what he was embracing. Um, Tertullian uh, was another guy who was scandalized by the morals in the church at his time at his time and he was he was uh, critical of the bishops and especially of the pope for being too lax with morals at that time uh, so tertullian started hanging around the montanists the montanists uh, were uh, a kind of unusual group they were they were very charismatic they they put a lot of emphasis on prophecy and on uh, the individual gifts as a as opposed to you know the the, the, the charisms of authority that reside in the church, right? Uh, so they eventually became separatists. Now, Tertullian was hanging around them. We don't know if he ended his days with them, and we don't know if he was around them when they became separatists. But we do know he became increasingly critical of the bishops. So you have this, this tendency that you see, and even the great, great lights of the North African church. Um, later on, you have uh, other other schismatic groups, uh, heretical groups arising, like the the Donatists. Yeah. You know that was the great African schism. Was there was a, it, it was almost half of the Christians in North Africa at certain points belonged to this Donatist schismatic movement, and uh, and 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 that was a real problem that Augustine had to address. Uh, there was there was actually a uh, a terrorist wing of the of the Donatists called the Circumcellions. That they used violence, they used murder, they used uh, massacres in villages in order to get their way. Uh, and so, so a lot of a lot of these things were 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 problems in the the, the North African Church, and uh, and and the great lights of of the Church, as I said, were either tempted by them or they had to deal with them. Yeah, yeah, especially I mean the, the Donatists were purists, right? The yes, <clears throat> believe that. Uh, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that, uh, you know, if a bishop is sinful or a priest has a mortal sin that uh, they couldn't confect the Eucharist, so he wanted a pure episcopacy, and they believed they were the true church. Sure, sure. And so you can see it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's a continuation of certain things that had had plagued Africa in the time of of Cyprian. All right, it's 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 a development of those ideas. We find people holding on to them. That uh, it's a, they they want to sit in judgment of the church rather than be judged by the church. 
Yeah. Also, North Africa is an area of persecution as well. Um, you know, they had undergone lots of persecution. In fact, that's some of the rigorous sects were in reaction to the persecutions. That's right. That's right. Because, uh, or, or at least a product of the persecutions. Because what happens in a persecution? Well, some people, some people are, are you know, get scared, right? And uh, in a moment of weakness, they they cave in. They deny the faith. They uh, burn incense to the emperor's genius. Uh, they commit apostasy in public, and that's a great scandal. And so you have to figure out what are we going to do with these people. And there were all different schools of thought about what to do with them. Now Cyprian, you know, came down on the side of mercy, but it's not mercy as we we like to think of it today, where we we tell people they get off scot free. No, they had to make. Uh, public restitution for for their public sins. Since apostasy is a public scandal, they had to they had to apologize publicly. They had to they had to repent publicly, and then they had to go for ten years maybe, or or five years uh, uh, without without receiving the sacraments. So they were still denied the sacraments for a time, but they had the hope that they would be restored within this lifetime. Whereas that wasn't the case earlier. Yeah, interesting. You know, I was just thinking, um, you know, uh, Augustine, uh, well, he's a rhetorician. He also was kind of a lawyer, right? I believe he was mm-hmm. a lawyer. He was uh, training yeah, lawyers, Tert- that's for sure. Tert- Tertullian's a lawyer. Uh, Lactantius, I think, is a lawyer. Um, is there some reason why there's so much jurists that, you know, end up sure. in, you know, the most memorable people in North Africa? Absolutely. And Marcus Minucius Felix, who wrote the Octavius, was a, a jurist living in Rome, right? But he was from North Africa. And his two companions, oh, uh, uh, Octavius and, Cece- and, and Cecilius, uh, were both lawyers from North Africa living in Rome. So uh, uh, that's, that's that, you know, yet another uh, kind of trio of, of lawyers from North Africa, but working in Rome. And yeah, there's there's a good reason for that, because uh, as I mentioned before, there was a renaissance going on in North Africa in the first, second, third century of our era. Re- real renaissance, cultural renaissance. And one of the areas that was developing most rapidly was, um, was legal thought. And some of the earliest digests of Roman laws were composed in North Africa. In uh, in the in the early centuries of of, of the Christian era, uh, they weren't composed by Christians, but uh, there is a Tertullian who appears in those digests, and some scholars, some historians believe it's most likely our Tertullian, the Tertullian who's the first theologian to be writing in Latin, the theologian who gave us in the West our our words for Trinity and for sacrament, the words we still use today. It was Tertullian who introduced those, but. You know, it's because he was thinking with the precision of a legal mind, and he was applying that legal mind to these theological problems and, and developing a vocabulary for us to discuss to discuss them. And, uh, and, and really, he developed a vocabulary that worked so well, we're still using it now. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool. So uh, while you were researching the book and writing the book, were you surprised by anything that you've uh, never noticed before? I think I was surprised by the extent to which uh, our liturgical tradition in the West is dependent on 
the African liturgy. Because, as I said, the Africans were using a Latin liturgy for centuries, perhaps two full centuries, before the Christians in Italy finally began to adopt it for themselves. Uh, so they were using this vernacular Latin liturgy in North Africa, and we find that a lot of the liturgical fads and fashions that, that um, kind of made their way across the church during this time uh, began in Africa. You know, certain, certain uh, movements in the, the development of the liturgy, the use of the Psalms in a certain way, uh, that sort of thing. These, these customs began in Africa, worked their way to, to Italy, and, uh, and were confirmed at Rome for, for the rest of the Western Church. Yeah, it was uh, Pope Damasus, I think, uh, was the one who starts switch the liturgy from Greek to Latin, or I know it's it's either he or somewhere around that time. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a much disputed question, but I do think it was it was rather late. Uh, in 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 uh, it was it was at least around three fifty three sixty that the church began to use Latin in Italy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, now. Um, yeah, before we go, we have a couple minutes. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. I'm always interested in what's coming down. A lot of little biographies. Uh, our Sunday visitor asked me to do a series of small biographies of the fathers of the church. Uh, so I've been doing those, uh, and I finished recently one of St. John Chrysostom and another of St. Athanasius of, of Alexandria. So, so those two should be coming out this year probably later in the year. Um, uh, I just finished writing a little biography of St. Patrick, uh, and that, I think, will be coming out from, from Scepter Press uh, probably later in the year. Um, I'm working on a, on a podcast series uh, on the cities of the Roman Empire and, uh, and how those cities first persecuted the church, eventually embraced the church, and became more fully themselves uh, with uh, the influence of Christianity. So I, I hope to finish that podcast series and make a book out of that as well. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, so uh, for people who uh, want to uh, check out the podcast, where would it be? Uh, where would it go up at? Well, uh, it's on most of the popular podcast platforms. Okay. Uh, but it originates from catholicculture.org, catholicculture.org, and it's called Way of the Fathers. Beautiful. All right. So where can people go to get a hold of the copy of Africa and the Early Church? You know, the best place where you find the best price is catholicbooksdirect.com, catholicbooksdirect.com. But you can get it at your local bookstore, your local Catholic bookstore. You can order it, and they'll find it for you. But catholicbooksdirect.com is, is usually the best place to get prices on my book. Awesome. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's great to support uh, good Catholic organizations, too, rather than going to, the you know, the big corporations as well. Yeah. And, uh, wow, yeah, it sounds exciting. I can't wait for, uh, I can't wait to... Uh, Finish this book and and all your other future work as well. So, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me back, Gary. All right. It's Mike Aquilina, folks. Yeah, definitely pick up a copy. Africa in the Early Church, the almost forgotten roots of Catholic Christianity. Wow. You know, the hour is flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. 
Bye-bye, everyone. Have a great day.